0: And I ask, if you will, to turn to the great third chapter of the book of Galatians. Galatians, the third chapter. Even though we're focused on portions between verses 6 through 14, I would like to begin reading at verse 1. Galatians chapter 3. Now, the book of Galatians is... um, A very early book in the Pauline corpus. It is debated as to precisely when it was written. Some of that depends on whether you have uh, the viewpoint that it was a North Galatian or South Galatian destination for the book. In my own view, it is the earliest of Paul's epistles. Um, It vies with 1 Thessalonians as another possibility, but it's very, very early. And the Apostle Paul is setting forth the great doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone in the book of Galatians. Let's bow in prayer before reading. And now, Heavenly Father, as we turn to this wondrous passage, we ask that your Holy Spirit will enable us to understand it. We pray that someone here today... Who doesn't understand at all what it means that we have just sung, that Jesus' blood and righteousness is all of our acceptance with you? We pray that someone will leave here today understanding that, believing in Christ that now does not believe. That your Holy Spirit would break down all of the defenses, for your Holy Spirit is omnipotent. And we pray that we believers will once again understand even more deeply the gospel of sovereign free grace and what you have done to redeem us, and how that applies to our lives. We ask, Father, that this gospel will spread through the globe. And we would even ask, should it please you, that you would use the feeble efforts of this minister, that that gospel may be spread far and wide. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. O foolish Galatians! Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham... Saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Can you think of any question that is more important than this? How can a sinner be accepted by God? How can a sinner be received, accepted as righteous in the presence of a holy and altogether righteous God? Can you think of any question that is more important than that one? At the judgment seat will you cower before the holiness of God and His perfect righteousness or will you stand in confidence as we have just sung in the hymn that preceded the sermon? There will be no middle ground on the day of judgment. Either you stand in confidence in the righteousness of Christ or you will hear, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Now the Reformation of the 16th century was fundamentally concerned with this very question. We are a reformed church which means that we believe the theology of the Reformation which is simply the theology of the Bible. But the Reformers especially went back to the book of Romans and to the book of Galatians in order to demonstrate that we are accepted only through what Christ achieved when He obeyed the law for us and when He paid the penalty on the cross shedding His blood there. Luther so loved the book of Galatians that you might remember he called it, My Catherine. His wife's name was Catherine. And so he spoke with that kind of affection for the book of Galatians. And I would say that if there is anything that is needed today in the church, it is, it's that Pauline note. It's a return to the theology of the Apostle Paul, especially with regard to our acceptance with God. The medieval church was noted for its pastoral cruelty. It kept men and women in the bondage of the thought that they could contribute something or that they needed to contribute something for their acceptance with God. And this is where Galatians and the Reformation truly intersect and should always be. A keynote of the preaching from this pulpit, Luther called this great doctrine of justification the standing or falling doctrine of the church. Now let's go to this passage by first of all remembering something of the broad context. And so we'll entitle this point Forgetting Grace, Forgetting Grace. You will remember that Paul founded the churches of Galatia. These churches had heard him first preach the gospel of grace. And he had preached one way of acceptance with God and that acceptance is only through the work of Christ. That's why in the first chapter he is just astounded, astonished that they are deserting this. Look at how he puts it here in chapter 1 verses 6 and following. Paul says, "...I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ." And are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now that word, anathema esto, let him be a curse, means let him be damned. That's very serious language on the part of Paul, the apostle. He's astounded. And so when we come to chapter 3, verse 1, you saw again how astounded he was, right? He begins by saying, you're foolish. Oh, foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And I've always enjoyed going to the various translations to see how they handle this particular passage. Moffat translates, Oh, senseless Galatians. The Revised English Bible, You stupid Galatians. And Phillips, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Now he says it affectionately because he loves them, but that really captures what Paul the Apostle is after. You've heard the gospel and you're about to exchange it. Is it not foolish to exchange the gospel of free grace for the bondage of works? Is it not foolish to exchange the gospel for, for the relentless demands of the law, to exchange the good news of heaven for the bad news of my inability and impotence to exchange the infinite merit of Christ for for my my infinite demerit. So rather than forget, he says, I want you to think about something. I want to take you back into redemptive history, and I want you to remember Father Abraham. Consider him, he says. So in verse 6, he puts it this way. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul then brings to mind the history of redemption. He says, you're forgetting the gospel, but Father Abraham was saved by the same gospel that I preached to you when I was among you. Now the Jews saw Abraham as a great proto lawkeeper but Abraham was not (laughs) saved by works, but by grace. So Paul cites in verse 6... Genesis 15, 6, which speaks of the crediting of righteousness. And Paul's point is this Abraham believed in Christ and was accepted on the basis of the merit of Jesus Christ. He received righteousness by faith and not by works. Moreover, God justified Abraham. His faith, which is essential and important, was not creative, it was not a work that he offered, but it is simply receptive. Faith earns nothing, it only receives what has been earned by Christ. And so in answering this question, how can we be right with God? We have to look outside of ourselves. The answer to our acceptance cannot be found within ourselves. Our faith is just an empty vessel to receive what Jesus Christ has done. And we are not saved on the basis of the strength of our faith either. But on the basis of the christ that faith receives. So forgetting the gospel of grace is not without consequence. Either one will completely misunderstand and believe in works and you will be lost forever, or you'll be terribly confused about assurance of faith. A wrong view of grace can lead to legalism and can lead to antinomianism. But Paul is saying in this passage, look, there has always and only been one way of acceptance with God, only one, and that is Jesus Christ and His accomplishment. It was true for Abraham, it is true for us. So what will Paul do? Well, he'll preach the cross to them once again. He will, as he says in verse 1, he will placard Jesus Christ before their eyes so that once again they see that their acceptance is only through what He has done. Nothing is so basic. Nothing is so indispensable as the cross. And through the substitutionary atonement of Christ, in our place condemned He stood, we sing, through that substitutionary atonement, God's wrath is removed, redemption is won, reconciliation is accomplished, plus nothing... And that's, that's the point, because there are those who would say today, along with the Judaizers in Galatia, yeah, sure, you're saved by grace, grace plus. Paul says you, your acceptance with God is on the basis of what Christ has achieved plus nothing. But let's back up a little bit. Why do we need the cross? So the second thing we want to see is the plight of the sinner. The plight of those of us who are sinners. And for that we go to verses 10-14. through Let's read these verses again. Galatians 3.10 and following. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse as it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So, the plight of the sinner is seen in these verses. First, to rely on the law for acceptance with God is a fatal mistake. Because he says here in verse 10, "...all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them." We are under a curse, we are condemned by its power, we are under the rule of this curse, we are under the sovereignty of this curse, if you will." And you must abide in the law, if you would be saved by the law. Lapses and oversights cannot be overlooked by the law. The law calls for perfect, inflexible, personal obedience. Now here's Paul's logic in this passage. There are people who are committed to keeping the law. All things written in the law. But despite their commitment, they do not keep all things written in the law. And the unstated but implicit premise is this. They don't keep all things written in the law because they cannot keep all things written in the law. And they cannot keep them because they are sinners. In chapter 5 verse 3 of this epistle... The apostle says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So if you think you're going to be saved by your good works, then your good works have to be thorough, perfect, totally in accord from the heart with the law of God. So the wonderful thing here is that the apostle Paul does not have this low view of the law of God saying, well, you just keep the law and you'll be saved. Or you can add to the work of Christ by your obedience. But he has this incredibly high view of the law of God. You remember I often have quoted you Machen's comment, a low view of the law makes a man a legalist in religion. A high view of the law makes a man a seeker after grace. And that's what Paul is doing here. He is presenting this high view of the law of God in order that we might be seekers after grace by the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Only by seeing the perfect demands of the law will a sinner cry out for salvation. If a person doesn't see that he's a sinner, then he won't cry out to Christ for salvation, will he? So he says about our plight, law and gospel are just incompatible ways of relating to God for acceptance. Isn't that what he says in verses 11 and 12? Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. By faith is contrasted with the law and its curse. Faith by free grace is unconditional. Law is thoroughly through and through conditional. Conditional. What do I mean by that? I mean this. Faith looks to Christ and it says, done. Law says, do. Faith says, Jesus paid it all. The law comes and says, you pay it all. Now let's remember that Jesus said the very same thing about the law. So keep your finger here and turn back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Matthew 5. Just look at a couple of verses just to remember. What Jesus said. Matthew 5:21 and 22, here's what Jesus said about the spirituality of the law. Matthew 5:21:22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, "You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Or look ahead in chapter 5 of Matthew to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Our problem then is not just our sins, it's sin it's the heart. There's something fundamentally wrong with the fallen human heart. And the law is held up as a mirror to show the reality of our hearts, what we're really like. And if you go through each of the commandments, if you really understand the perfection of the moral law of God, there is not one of us here going through those commandments Who would not say I have broken it, broken it, broken it, broken it. Ten times over I have broken the law of God. We have all broken every single one and we remember the spirituality of the law and we say I'm guilty. I'm infinitely guilty because I have broken the law of an infinitely holy God. As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse and those are heavy words under a curse. Our catechism says very well of sinners... We have lost communion with God or under His wrath and curse and so are made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. And Paul says, it is written. That is to say, with the finger of God. It's His Word. God says so in His Bible. And so here we stand. I'm talking about apart from Christ, apart from the Gospel, as sinners who have not yet trusted Him, we are naked. Before Him, our hearts are bare before Him, before His all-seeing eye. And if I stood in my own righteousness, I have none, and I would be lost forever. The only way that you and I can think ourselves to be righteous is if we just don't know the law. I remember Spurgeon saying somewhere, "It's like a fellow that's in this in this this um, this cellar." And he's, he's walking around and all of these loathsome creatures are all around. And he doesn't know it because he's completely in the dark. It's only when the shutters are removed and the light pours in... ...that we begin to understand that we're walking in the midst of all of this. That's what the law of God does. We remove the shutters, the light shines in... ...and we see ourselves to be the needy sinners that we are. We cry, Lord save me, I can't save myself... In this last Christianity today, it's not something I often reference, but there's a testimony of a young Frenchman who is a professed atheist who lived a dissolute life. Humanly speaking, the world would have thought he had everything. But this young man is now a Christian and he's laboring to become a Christian theologian. What happened? Well, among the several things that happened to this man, the Lord awakened his formerly dead conscience. And as his conscience began to be disturbed, he wanted God to open the sky and send the light. But I'm quoting him here. He says, what followed was less theatrical and more brutal, God reactivated my conscience. He spoke of a particularly heinous sin. He said even by atheistic standards, it was a really heinous thing to do that was in his background, a particularly evil thing that he tried to shove down, tried to hide He says, but God brought it back to my mind in full force and I finally saw it for what it was. I was struck with an intense guilt, crippled with chest pain and disgusted by the thought of what I had done and the lies I had covered with it. I was lying in pain in my apartment near Paris when all of a sudden the quarter dropped. That is why Jesus had to die. Me. Now that's what the law does. It shows us why Jesus had to die. And this young man trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Robert Haldane in the 19th century took the gospel to Geneva, he read with divinity students, theology students, men preparing to be pastors who had never read the Bible, who weren't taught the Bible. And on one occasion he read to them from the book of Romans a passage about the corruption of our nature. And one of the students said, now I see that doctrine in the Bible. But then Haldane says, yes, but do you see it in your heart? Now that's the question. I think everybody here could say, I know the Bible teaches that all of us are totally depraved sinners incapable of doing any spiritual good. But I ask, do you see it in your heart? I'll read the passage to you from which I'm sure he read. It's Romans, the third chapter. It says this. What then? Romans 3, 9. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And it was that passage that broke down, I think it was Merle de Binya, his his heart, his pride, his arrogance in thinking that he could be saved because he was really all right after all and his works were acceptable to God. This then brings us to the third thing we see in the text, the glory of the cross, the glory of the cross. We need grace. Everyone here needs grace. Little children, your pastor up here is a fallen, depraved sinner who needs grace. You need grace. I need grace. We all need grace. Where do we find it? Thank God, it finds us. For we read in Galatians three in verse thirteen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree." Now this is a reference to Deuteronomy twenty-one twenty-three, the exposure of the of the criminal's corpse when a crime deserved death. The criminal was hung in open as a curse. For all to see there before God and man. In Numbers 25, the wrath of God is averted during the apostasy of Baal-peor when the chiefs were hanged in the sun before the Lord in a far, far greater way. God's wrath is averted from us when Jesus Christ was hung in the place of sinners on the cross. In an infinitely greater way, this is what Christ has done for us. He took the penalty of my plight there is a radical need, and there is a radical remedy. So verse 13, look at the verse again. Christ, the infinite Son of God who assumed human nature, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And you've read it so often that it doesn't shock you, but it really is. And it's so shocking that some commentators try to maneuver around what it really means, but Paul means exactly what he says. Christ bore our doom. God has never and will never lower his standard of holiness. The law must be fulfilled and its penalty paid. The father provided his son and the curse that I deserved bore down on him in my place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the closest parallel. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Vicarious in my place, vicarious, penal, substitutionary atonement, the great exchange. Luther said it beautifully in his commentary on Romans. He said, it is as if God said to his son, you be Peter the denier, you be Paul that persecutor, you be David that adulterer. That sinner that ate the forbidden fruit. When Jesus went to the cross with my sins, it is as if God were saying to him, "You be David McWilliams. He loved me. He gave himself for me. Can you, by faith say that? And how can this be? Christ's infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings infinite value so that our infinite hell-deserving sins could be paid for in full. So in verse 14, the cross turns the curse into blessing so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now the present attitude of many evangelicals men who call themselves evangelicals toward the truth of substitutionary atonement is really appalling. The idea of a judicial transference of my sin to Christ and a judicial transference of his righteousness to me to my account is considered crude and opprobrium is is uh, heaped upon it. Well, call it crude if you will. I call it glorious. It's all my hope. I have no other hope but this. Christ in my place bearing the penalty of my sin. This is, this is wonderful. It is truly wonderful. And it was the only way. Athanasius said in his work on the incarnation there was need for the very judge who made the decree to fulfill himself the sentence in the form of the condemned. Your judge came and took your place so that you might not be judged that's what athanasius was saying are you astounded or not i mean really now let's think more deeply about the substitutionary atonement for a few moments christ in the sinner's place on the cross the issue biblically is just this you know jesus did not have to die God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the one God in three persons did not have to devise the plan to redeem. But God having determined to save us from our sins, there was no other way that we could be saved but through the death of God's Son on the cross. The atonement of the Son was not the best of many options. It was the exclusive way of redemption apart from which no sinner could be saved. It was necessary in order that that sinners like us be saved, that the Son of God obey the law in our place that we broke and pay its penalty demanded by God's justice. God must punish sin. That's who He is. Therefore, the reason God chose to save elect sinners through the means of the substitutionary atonement of the Son is because in His wisdom there was no other way that our sin debt could be paid. And indeed, this in turn is the great presupposition of our justification before the tribunal of God. If God must punish sin, and if sin deserves infinite punishment because sin is an offense against God's infinite majesty... Then there is only one who could save sinners. God himself who is infinite must offer himself in the person of his son who assumed human nature so that he could pay the infinitely valuable payment for the infinite debt of the sins of his people. His infinite nature, again, gave to his finite sufferings infinite value. And I think this is the most wonderful truth and the most astonishing truth and the most mysterious truth of them all. Which leads us to the fourth thing. The fourth thing, trusting the substitute. Trusting the substitute. Now, first for most of you, I believe... You have believed in Christ. You have trusted Him. This is is doctrine and theology in which a theologian can swim, but which our smallest children can also by grace understand. Jesus died for me on the cross. I trust Him. That's the gospel. The smallest child can understand it, and you'll spend eternity understanding the depth of it. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we continue to need the gospel and we need it every day. Because you and I are not accepted on the basis of the quality of our contrition. And there's always the temptation for us to fall back on the quality of our contrition, which is never going to meet the standard of God's law. The Belgic Confession, one of our great Reformed confessions, puts it this way, Our consciences would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. And isn't that true? My conscience would be continually vexed if I did not, to use Luther's language, if I did not immerse my conscience in the blood of the Son. And so I I say, how often have I said to us, we never mature beyond the cross. But some here have never yet trusted Christ for your justification, your acceptance with God. You've not trusted Him. Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Your sins are not greater than the merits of the blood of Christ. And His arm is powerful to save. And His arms are wide open to embrace those who trust in His Son. You see the problem here is bringing you down to the price. The price you say Yeah, the price, no haggling here. We read about that price, didn't we, in Isaiah 55 this morning? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? What's the price? No price, not for you. The price for you, for us sinners, is nothing at all. And that's the problem. Until you see that you produce nothing for your acceptance with God and simply trust in Christ, you will not be accepted with God. In this very book, in chapter 2 of Galatians, in verse 16, the apostle says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. The price is zero for you, because Jesus paid it all. Romans 3.24 says we are justified freely by His grace. So don't insult God by trying to add to the payment of the cross. Do you really think that you can add to the value of Calvary? This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Sinners, mind you, those destitute, those who have nothing whatsoever to pay. Those are the ones for whom Jesus gave his life on the cross. So I ask you the question, do you want Christ? If you want him, then you can have him. Because if you want him, that's God's work in your heart. Mr. Spurgeon said somewhere this. I'm going to read you this wonderful quotation from this great man. can't recall what text he was preaching, but I recalled the quotation and copied it out for us. Oh, you that are self-righteous. Anybody here like that? We're all that by nature. We constantly want to go back to it. Oh, you that are self-righteous, let me speak to you this morning with just a word or two of terrible and burning earnestness. Remember, sirs, the day is coming when a crowd more vast than this shall be assembled on the plains of earth, when on a great white throne the Savior, judge of men, shall sit. Now he has come, the book is opened, the glory of heaven is displayed, rich with triumphant love and burning with unquenchable vengeance. Ten thousand angels are on either hand, and you are standing to be tried. Now, self righteous man, tell me that you went to church three times a day. Come, man, tell me now that you've kept all the commandments. Tell me now that you are not guilty. Come before him with a receipt of your mint and your anise and your cumin. Come along with you. Where are you? Oh, you're fleeing. You are crying, Rocks hide us, mountains on us fall. What are you after? why you were so fair on earth that none dare speak to you you were so good and so comely why do you run away come man pluck up courage come before thy maker tell him that thou art honest sober excellent and that thou deservest to be saved why dost thou delay to repeat thy boastings out with it come say it no you will not I see you still flying with shrieks away from your master's presence. There will be none found to stand before him then in their own righteousness. But look, 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 I see a man coming forward out of that motley throng. He marches forward with a steady step and with a smiling eye. What? Is there any man found who shall dare to approach the dread tribunal of God? What, is there one who dares to stand before his maker? Yes, there is one. He comes forward and he cries, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Do you not shudder? Will not the mountains of wrath swallow him? Will not God launch that dreadful thunderbolt against him? No, listen while he confidently proceeds. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that hath risen again." And I see the right hand of God outstretched. Come, ye blessed, enter into the kingdom prepared for you. How can I know that God will accept me? How can I stand in the judgment? Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay. Fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt, from shame. When from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies, e'en then this shall be all my plea. Jesus hath lived hath died for me. This is the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.